I love sports. Most of you know that about me. I love sports. And I, I tend to love team sports more than individual sports. Something about the team working together to accomplish something that I, I love. But even within team competitions, there are individual battles, right? Individual showdowns, individual moments, even in the midst of team competition. So, for example, in baseball, even though it's a team against a team, you have the pitcher against the batter. You have the one-on-one showdown, the strikeout pitcher against the home run hitting batter. In soccer, which is really one of the ultimate team games, you still have times where there's penalty kicks. And in the penalty kick, it's one guy trying to kick the ball past one other person. So one-on-one. In basketball, they have what they call the isolation play, where everybody gets out of the way and they go one-on-one, one offensive player, one defender, these one-on-one showdowns. And even in football, where it's hard to figure out what's happening half the time, I'm sure, there are individual battles all over the field that people are trying to win. And a lot of times when a play goes poorly for the offense, uh, the commentator will point out one person didn't do their job. One person lost their battle. These one-on-one showdowns. And we're in week four of our series where we're going through the first 20 chapters of Exodus. And what we're about to see is a remarkable showdown between Moses and Pharaoh. This amazing showdown that we know as the 10 plagues. There's a lot happening here. And and in sports, when we look at one-on-one showdowns, we say, well, that reveals a lot about that person, their ability and their character and their willingness to battle and endure. But in this battle, when we look at Moses and Pharaoh, we're going to learn some things about those two individuals. But most importantly, we're going to learn some really significant things about God, who he is and how he does what he does. And so I want us to look at Exodus chapter 7 this morning, and uh, this will sound scary to you because we're going to cover six chapters this morning. I know some of you are like, oh goodness. Don't worry, we are gonna, we're going uh, to get through this, and I'm really only going to read to you a couple passages. But I want to use Exodus chapter 7 verses 1 and 6 as really a launching pad to look at the next five or six chapters. So this will be on the screen for you. I'm reading to you from the ESV, and it says this, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Verse 3, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders, he's talking about the plagues, in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then... I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. I want to use this verse to identify five statements, five things that God says he is doing or will do, and I want to use that to outline our talk together, our time together this morning. And so let's look at these five statements. And the first statement I want to look at is, did you notice that God said to Moses, I have made you like God to Pharaoh? I have made you, Moses, like God to Pharaoh. What does this mean? It means a couple obvious things, but it also means something we might not notice. First off, it means that God has chosen to anoint his servant to do a specific task. 
God was anointing Moses to accomplish his purposes and his plans. But it also means this, that God, once again, was going to use a normal, regular, everyday person to accomplish divine activity. So we have this this pattern of God, that God who wants to accomplish his will here on earth as it is in heaven, he partners with people like you and me. And he uses us to do and accomplish his will. And this is what he meant. Moses, I've anointed you to do this task and to accomplish my purposes, and so I've made you like God to Pharaoh. But it actually means more than that, and here's why. In the Hebrew, the word like isn't there. I'm not sure why it's in the translations, but in the original Hebrew, this is how it actually would have sounded. Moses, I have made you God to Pharaoh. Not like God, but I've made you God to Pharaoh. What does this mean? Peter ends in his commentary, uh, is, says this, is very helpful. Listen to what he says. He says, in Egyptian royal ideology, so in the way of thinking in the Egyptian culture, the Pharaoh was considered to be a divine being. We've talked about this. Pharaoh believed that he was the incarnate son of the sun god. So by calling Moses God, here's what God is doing. Yahweh is beating Pharaoh at his own game. It is not the king of Egypt who is God. Rather, it's the shepherd this leader of slaves who is God. And this Moses-hyphenated God defeats Pharaoh in a manner that leaves no doubt as to the true nature and source of his power. From Pharaoh's perspective, here's what Moses is about to do in the next 10 plagues. He controls the elements. He controls the bugs. He controls livestock, fire from heaven. He controls the water of the sea. And he even has authority over life and death. Moses is not simply like God, to Pharaoh. He truly is God to Pharaoh, and in that, God is acting through Moses. So what this means, now, Pharaoh believes that gods can come down and be humans, and that's how Pharaoh considered himself. In fact, one of the things about Pharaoh is that in order to keep his distance from normal people, in order to sort of keep up this mirage of him being a god, he barely ever spoke to people directly. He had prophets and priests and magicians that would speak for him. So when Moses came in claiming to have power and Aaron spoke for Moses, Pharaoh would have understood what that meant. Moses is now, of course, Moses was not confused. Moses knew he was not God, but we're saying from Pharaoh's perspective, by the time these 10 plagues were over, Pharaoh and all the people of Egyptians looked, all the people in Egypt looked at Moses and said, he's God. He's got the power of a God. We've seen what he's done. His prophet Aaron is speaking for him. And we see that God makes Moses to be like God before Pharaoh. The second statement that I want to notice from the passage we read is that he says, God says that I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is a weird, difficult to interpret phrase. Uh, let me help us a little bit. What, what, what God is saying is that even though I'm about to do these amazing signs and wonders, Pharaoh is not going to be changed. It's amazing, when you think of the 10 plagues, and we're going to go through them in just a minute, when you think of what Pharaoh and the Egyptians endured, it's amazing it got to 10, right? And most of us would have tapped out earlier. You know, some of us are softer than others. I go to the gym every now and then and try to lift weights, and I know you're supposed to do like 8 or 10 of whatever you're doing, or maybe more, it's 8 or 10 for me. But, it, but when other people are there with you, you need someone with you, right? Because they're like counting, and they're like calling you names, and calling you a baby, and come on, do it, you wimp. When I'm there by myself, it's like after like three or four, I'm like, ah, I'm kind of tired. Like, you know, some of us wimp out earlier. I would have wimped out a long time before I got to plague number 10. But Pharaoh's heart was so 
hard. Why? Well, three times God says in the book of Exodus, I will, future tense, harden Pharaoh's heart. And then once we get into the story, on six different accounts, it says that God did. It says, literally, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Then there's seven times where it says that his heart was hardened, but it doesn't say who hardened his heart. And then there's three times where it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Okay, so who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Was it God or was it Pharaoh? And the answer is yes. Yes, both. And what we find here in this statement that I will harden Pharaoh's heart is we find the mystery and the tension of the sovereignty of God, that God's going to do what God wants to do, but also the full weight of responsibility of humankind. So God is fully, fully sovereign overall, but we make our choices. And we bear the weight and the responsibility of the choices that we make. We are not puppets. God is not a puppet master causing us to act in ways that we'd rather not act. I really want to be good. It's not like Pharaoh in his heart was like, I really just want to be good. I really just want to love this Yahweh God. But God kept hardening his heart and wouldn't let him. No, Pharaoh had no interest in bowing his knee to Yahweh. And God knew that. And so God used the hardness of Pharaoh's hearts to accomplish his purposes. God is always at work. And this is one of the great mysteries of how God does things. But God can take every situation of your life, every circumstance, bad, good, every choice you make, smart, dumb, every joy or grief that we walk through, somehow God takes it all and he weaves it into the tapestry of redemption, the story that he's telling. And what this simply means is that, and you've heard me say this before, nothing is wasted. Nothing. Everything God can use because he can use, listen, this is one of the things we have to learn from the story. He can and he does use the hardest of hearts even to accomplish his great purposes and his great plans. And some of you will be honest and say, there was a day where I think I might have had one of the hardest of hearts. And look what God has done. And let's never get to the point where we think we're beyond having to deal with the hardness of our own hearts, right? We still have hard hearts at times where we want our way and not his way. But God is going to use even the hardness of your heart to accomplish his purposes and his plans. The third statement in this text, and this is where we'll spend the most of our time this morning, is that God says, I will lay my hand on Egypt. Now that sounds nice and all, but it's not. Another version or another place, he says, I will bring my fist down. This is like, you know, dad in the house putting his foot down right? I'm putting my foot down, and we're not going any further with this. God says, I'm going to lay my hand on Egypt, and so the showdown, it begins. Now, Moses and Pharaoh walk up to, or sorry, Moses and Aaron walk up to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, prove yourself. You got this God that you're talking about, prove yourself and work a miracle. You know what Aaron does. He takes the staff, he throws it on the ground, and it turns into a serpent. Now, why a serpent? Why a snake? This is tremendously significant, Serpent worship was very, very strong in Egypt, especially in the Nile Delta where the Hebrews were enslaved. The Egyptians actually in that same area, they built a temple to the snake goddess whose name was Wajet. And Pharaoh's ceremonial headdress was actually crested at the top with a fierce female cobra. So the snake was a big deal. In fact, when Pharaoh would ascend to the throne, part of the ascension and the coronation ceremony involved Pharaoh repeating this little poem. O great one, O O magician, O fiery snake, let there be a terror of me like there is a terror of thee. 
Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of spirits. So there's a real significance in Egypt to this snake. And so this helps us understand why when, what Aaron was doing when he threw down the staff in front of Pharaoh and it turned into a serpent. Here's what one of the commentaries say. He was taking the symbol of the king's majesty and making it crawl in the ground, crawl in the dust. This was a direct assault on Pharaoh's sovereignty. In fact, it was an attack on the entire Egyptian belief system. And the commentator goes on to say the modern day equivalent or the modern comparison would be somebody walking into the Oval Office with a bald eagle and wringing its neck. That's essentially what happens when Aaron throws his staff and it turns into a serpent. When God confronts other gods, he does not probe around looking to find its weakness, hoping to figure out its weak spot. Instead, he takes aim at the enemy's greatest strength and he overwhelms it with his superior force. So in this case, God sends Moses and Aaron straight to Pharaoh's command center where he proceeds to then claim ultimate authority over all of Egypt. It's pretty remarkable. And then Pharaoh's magicians come running out with their staff in their hands and they do the same thing. And they throw their staffs on the ground and they turn into snakes. Now what is that about? There's a couple of different ways to interpret it. Some people believe that there actually was a trick you could do where you could actually grab certain snakes in a certain spot on its neck and cause it to be paralyzed. And then when you throw it on the ground, it would, it would then come back to, you know, it would act like a snake. And some people think maybe that's what they did. It was a, a parlor trick. Other people believe, you know, the, they probably had access to real demonic power. Like there was real power here that they were using. But whatever it was, what happens next is incredible because Aaron's staff, which becomes the serpent, swallows all the other snakes, swallows them and eats them all. And in the Egyptian culture, when one god or one thing swallowed another thing, it it was absorbing its power. It was taking its power, similar to how when I go out and get a big burger, I absorb all those calories, all that power. Now I got to figure out how to get that power off my body. But Same idea. When something swallowed something, it would absorb its power. So when Pharaoh and his magicians are sitting there watching Aaron's serpent swallow all of the other snakes, it was like he was taking their power from them. But Pharaoh's heart, even after seeing this, was hardened, and he would not listen to them. And this is where we get to the ten plagues. Now, how do we understand these ten plagues? And A guy named James Boyce provides us with something on the religious significance of the plagues. Listen to what he says. In order to understand these plagues, we need to understand that they were directed against the gods and goddesses of Egypt. Not so much the people of Egypt, although the people suffered, because whenever whenever what you worship suffers, you suffer too. It's still true. So in order to understand these plagues, they were directed against the gods and goddesses of Egypt. They were intended to show the superiority of Yahweh to Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods. There were about eight, or there were about 80 major deities in Egypt. So they're a pantheistic religion. 80 major deities all clustered around the three great natural forces of life, the river, the land, and the sky. So it should not surprise us that the plagues God sent in this historic battle or showdown, they follow a three-force pattern. The first two plagues are against the gods of the river, the Nile. The next four were against the land gods, and the final four were against the gods of the sky, culminating in the death of the firstborn. So ultimately, when we think on a large scope about these 10 plagues, we have to realize this is God defeating all the lesser gods of Egypt. This is God claiming his superiority and strength over them. And with these 10 plagues, God is actually doing a decreation of sorts. 
He's bringing chaos where there was order before. And Pharaoh was the one that Egyptians believed that Pharaoh was the one who could hold together the cosmic order. Pharaoh had the power to hold together. They called it ma'at. He could hold together cosmic order. So when their universe was falling apart, it was showing that Pharaoh did not have the power that they, would thought, they thought that he had. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at each plague. I know that you can't read all of that, but that might help you a little bit to see. Um, I want to look at each plague very quickly. And I want us to understand how each plague was God defeating one of the Egyptian gods. So first thing that happens is that the water is turned into blood in the Nile River. And not just in the Nile River, but in people's homes, in their pitchers of water. Every place, the water was turned into blood. Now, the thing about the Nile River is that the Egyptians used it for everything. I mean, we can't use Onondaga Lake for anything, but the Egyptians used the Nile for everything. Without the Nile, their land would have been useless. The river was their lifeblood. It was the basis for their entire civilization. It was their transportation system. It was their irrigation system. It was their water supply, their food supply. They, re- they actually relied upon annual floods just to make their land fertile so they could plant. So there were three different gods associated with the Nile River. Osiris was the god of the Nile. Then there was a god named Nu, who was the god of anything that lived in the river. And then the most important one was a god named Happy. And Happy was the god of the flood. And they gave Happy other names like this, the giver of life, the lord of sustenance, the one who causes the whole land to live. So Moses strikes the Nile with his staff, and in one moment, the Nile turns into blood. And here's what God's doing. He's doing two things here. He's both demonstrating his power over the gods of the Nile, but he's also punishing the Egyptians for their idolatry. Because with one single blow, he gave them a water crisis, a food shortage, a transportation shutdown, a financial disaster, and a spiritual crisis. And he did it by turning the river into blood. He made the object of their worship into a thing of horror. And it proved that these three gods did not have the power to meet their needs. Here's what God's doing. He's exposing the utter uselessness of false gods. He still wants to do it for us today. The second thing is these frogs. So the frogs uh, come out and take over Egypt. And everywhere you can look, there's frogs. Now these first two plagues, the Egyptian magicians were able to duplicate on some sort of a lesser scale. These first two, they, they were able to somehow turn water into wine or water into blood. They were somehow able to make frogs appear. But those are the only two. After one and two, the magicians realize we can't do anything right now that's happening. So these frogs show up. And uh, if you're going to understand the full significance of this plague, you have to understand that there was a specific god in Egypt who was always pictured with the head of, and the body of a frog. And this god's name was Hecht. And, and since Hecht was embodied in a frog, the frog was sacred in Egypt. And this is what it meant. The Egyptians were not allowed to kill frogs. They could not kill frogs. So now think about the situation they're in. Everywhere they look, there's frogs. Frogs in their house, frogs in their soup, frogs in their pants. I mean, they can't get away from frogs. And not only can they not get away from frogs, they can't kill the frogs because they're sacred. They worship them. And God is making a mockery of their false worship here by saying, you love and worship frogs so much? Here you go. As many as you could ever want and more. And when the frogs died, I'm sure their decaying bodies must have turned Egypt into a stinking horror. The third plague was the gnats. Now, this is where the magicians of Egypt could no longer duplicate what Moses and Aaron were doing. This was intended to humiliate the earth god, whose name was Jeb. By turning the very dust into bugs, which is what happened with this plague, God was claiming authority over the very soil of Egypt. 
and thus over the God of the ground. And here's what God's doing. Don't you see what he's doing now? He's defeating one God at a time. It's like a, it's like a video game where you've got to beat bosses at every level. And every level, God is defeating a new God. The fourth one is this. And from the fourth one on, by the way, the plagues only affect the Egyptians. They no longer affect on any level the Israelites. So the Israelites, the Hebrew slaves from, from, from plagues four through ten, are safe from all of it. And it's only affecting Egypt. The flies, they're not sure exactly which sort of God. There are three different gods that it could have been. But the point of the flies is that he is again showing that he is more powerful than the gods that Egypt worships. But this time, Pharaoh says, you can go. This is actually the second time. Pharaoh said it after the frogs, and he says it here after the flies. Um, And then he'll say it again with plagues uh, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Pharaoh says, you can go. But then once the frogs were gone, and once Moses prayed for the flies to go, Pharaoh changed his mind. You know, every morning, Madeline is usually, our youngest is usually the first one who wakes up, and Aaron takes her down, and we always say, Madeline, actually, when Madeline wakes up, she's a lot like me, she immediately asks for breakfast. And, and by ask, I mean, like, demands, like, first thing out of her mouth, breakfast, breakfast. And uh, so Aaron will take her down, and she's usually up before our two older girls who sleep in a little longer. And so Aaron will get her whatever she wants, you know, within reason, of course, whatever we have, uh, cereal, yogurt, um, eggs, whatever. And Maddie will slowly start to eat it. She's not really a big eater. Um, And then the girls will come down and they'll ask for something for breakfast. And whatever the girls ask for breakfast, all of a sudden Madeline has a change of heart. Now she doesn't want anything to do with what Aaron gave her. Now she says, I want that. And she has this change of heart and she has this change of mind. And we see in Pharaoh, time and time again in this story, he says he's going to let them go, but he has, this, he has this change of heart. He has this change of mind. The fifth plague, the livestock die. Now, this is the first plague where there's major economic repercussions. All your cows and cat, all your cattle dies, you got a problem financially. This was the first plague also to bring death. Uh, in this sort of a way. And it was the first to destroy Pharaoh's personal property. So this is Pharaoh's cows now, Pharaoh's cattle who are dying. And things are beginning to escalate. You get in that sense? Like it's starting to get a little more serious. The plagues are getting a little more intense. In fact, in, in Exodus eight nineteen, when God sends the gnats, it says that he sent it with his finger. But here, when he sends the plague on the livestock, it says in ver- chapter nine, verse three, he sends it with his hand. He's moving from his finger to his hand, and he's about to drop his fist. And it's getting worse. Now, many of Egypt's gods and goddesses were, were depicted as livestock. Many of them were bulls or cows and different things. That's still common in certain religions. And here is God uh, bringing judgment on the livestock. The sixth plague is the boils. Now, we don't know exactly what sort of skin ailment this was, except it sounds terrible. Inflamed areas of skin, festering boils that eventually broke into blistering sores. No thank you. And here... The Egyptians are realizing this God, Moses, has power even over our bodies. So far, he's just been affecting our stuff. Now it's affecting our bodies. And it wasn't just the average Egyptian. We read in this story that it was, it was Pharaoh and his magicians, too. The magicians were being uh, struck with these boils, and Pharaoh was. And the, it's interesting, the way that Aaron and Moses um, sort of made this plague, so to speak, happen is they took ashes and they threw it in the air, symbolically. And it turned, in, and all of a sudden, people begin to have boils in their body. Well, you know, the Egyptian priest would do the same thing, actually, in their ceremonies. They would take sacrificial ashes, and they would throw them in the air. And it was always a sign of blessing, though. 
So when Aaron and Moses do it, it's like we're taking your thing that you do to bless and we're turning it into a curse. The other thing that happened with this plague is that the priests and the magicians in the culture, they valued purity. And because their bodies were no longer pure, because they had boils, because they had open sores, they couldn't carry out their priestly duties anymore. They couldn't do their false worship. This is an attack on all the gods and goddesses that the Egyptians trusted in for health and healing. The seventh one was hail. Now, with this one, this is the first time that, that Moses kind of gives a warning. He says, hey, this hail is coming. You might want to shelter your animals. Pharaoh does not heed his warning. But we begin to see that the people around Pharaoh, his inner circle, they're beginning to shake in their commitment to Pharaoh. Because guess what they do? They hear the warning, and Pharaoh's like, we're not doing it. We're not going to go take our livestock and our slaves and cover them up. We're not going to do it. But some of the inner circle in Pharaoh's temple, in in his palace, they do. And they run out, and it says that they go and they take their slaves. In chapter 9, verse 20, it says they bring their slaves and their livestock into their homes, which is pretty humiliating in this culture because remember how the Egyptians looked at shepherds? They thought that anybody who worked with animals, anybody who worked with their hands were, were lesser people, and now they're bringing those people and those animals into their own homes. You're beginning to see a fear of God rise up in the Egyptians, even though it's not rising up yet in Pharaoh. Then the locusts come. And when the locusts come, this is total devastation of the land. It's interesting, we're in chapter 10 now, and God says through Moses or through Aaron to Pharaoh, he says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? It's like even God is a little stunned now. Like how arrogant, how long before you humble yourself before me? And, and God still asks that of us at times, doesn't he? How long before we will humble ourselves before God? Where, what do we have to go through? What does he have to bring us to in order for us to humble ourselves before God. Now, Pharaoh this time actually tries to negotiate his way out of this plague. And he says, all right, okay, this sounds terrible. Because locusts, we're not very familiar with locusts in our, in our country, but locusts just ruin everything. I mean, they just, they just crush the land. And land was wealth in this culture, in an agrarian culture. So Pharaoh says, all right, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to let you go. Who's going? And, uh, Pharaoh says, and Moses says, everyone's going. Men, women, children, livestock were all going. And Pharaoh says, absolutely not. Just the men are going. And in that, Pharaoh misunderstands two things about Yahweh. He thinks, because in their culture, really only the men were involved in the religious responsibilities and the religious duties. Their gods really were only interested in men. And so they thought, you don't need your women and your children. They're not as worth as much. Just take your men. Leave your women and your children. And he's misunderstanding that our God is not just caring for and have a heart for a specific gender, but our God cares for all, for men and for women and for children. And the other thing that Pharaoh doesn't understand about God is you don't bargain with God. You don't barter with him. He gives you something to do, and you do it. And so there's a bunch of Egyptian gods here. Min, who was the patron of crops. Isis, who was the goddess of life. Nepri, who was the god of grain, and so on and so forth. And when the locust comes, all of these gods are seen as defeated. And now we get to the second to the last plague, and it's darkness. Now, the Egyptians, above all things else, worshipped the sun. They had multiple gods for the sun. They had a god of the sunrise. They had a god of the midday sun. They had a god of the sunset. But the primary deity in their pantheistic religion was Ra, the god of the sun. And Pharaoh was supposed to be that god's son, the incarnate son of God that was supposed to be Pharaoh. So when this darkness comes, 
This might seem like the least harmless of all of them, right? I mean, yeah, you might stub your toe, like, trying to walk around, but really, how big of a deal is darkness? This was a really big deal, because now we're not talking about physical misery. We're not talking about financial loss. We're talking about significant spiritual uh, humiliation for Pharaoh, because Pharaoh is supposed to control the sun. Pharaoh is the god of the sun, and he can't stop the sun from going away, and he can't bring the sun back. And Pharaoh is so angry. At first he says, you can go. He changes his mind again, and right before we get to the last plague, Pharaoh says to Moses, on the next time you see me, you're dead. This is the exact quote from chapter 10, verse 28. On the day you see my face, you shall die. And here's what we find. Pharaoh has learned he's not in control over nature. He's not in control over livestock. He's not even in control over the sun. But there's one thing that Pharaoh still thinks he controls. Life and death. He still thinks that he controls the life of death of people. And that's when we get to the last plague. Where God has to show Pharaoh, no, you're not even Lord over that. Now this is the most difficult plague to swallow, isn't it? This is the one that probably will bother our sensibilities the most. Because the firstborn son of every Egyptian family dies in this plague through the angel of death. This is a terrible loss in any society, but especially in a society that's so patriarchal, that so valued the male, especially the eldest male. There is not a bigger loss that they could have suffered or endured. But let's remember to the beginning of Exodus. And I'm not talking about uh, let's get them back for what they did to us. But do you remember what Pharaoh said about all the Hebrew sons? Kill them all. Not just the eldest son. Any male that's born to the Hebrews, Pharaoh put a law out. You kill them. So Pharaoh really brought this on himself. Pharaoh really brought this on his people. And in a sense here, we're seeing the justice of God for what the wrongs that were done against his people. Now, Let's get to the fourth phrase that we saw in chapter 7. God says, I will bring my people out of this land. And this is where we get to the Passover. And the Passover is something I just I want to read to you this text from chapter 12, verses 21 through uh, 27. It says that Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. What's happening here is God is providing the Israelites with a way to not have to suffer from the 10th plague. Because the 10th plague was going to be death in every home for the firstborn son of every single house. How many of you are firstborn? I'm a firstborn son. How many of you are firstborn sons? So bad news for us, bad news for us. And so here we have God giving Moses instructions on how to help the Israelites not suffer from the angel of death, but rather that the angel of death will pass over their house. That's where we get the word Passover from and leave them alone. Verse 22, it says, take a bunch of hyssop, there's like a big paintbrush, and, and, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. And touch the lintel, which is the top of the, uh, the door, and two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. I'm sure that was not a hard rule to keep. Verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And this is where they, the Israelites began the Passover feast that they would celebrate every year, and they still do celebrate. Jewish people still celebrate the Passover feast. Verse 24, or verse 25 
verse 26, and when the children say to you, what do you mean by this service? In other words, what does this Passover feast mean? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And that night, the angel of death, the destroyer, comes through Egypt, and you can hear the cries all through the land of Egypt, the families that are grieving, the hearts that are broken. And Pharaoh comes to Moses and Aaron and begs them to leave. Get out. Take everything. Take your women. Take your children. Take your livestock. In fact, when they left, they plundered the Egyptians. Not in a sort of um, take advantage way, but the Egyptians basically just gave them stuff. Like, just go and take our gold and take our silver and take, basically, and before Pharaoh let Moses and Aaron leave, he asked them one final thing. Please, bless me. Now, you don't ask anyone for a blessing unless you think it has the power to give you one. And this is the moment where we started. God made Moses like God to Pharaoh. Pharaoh comes to Moses like he's his God and says, would you, would you bless me? And here's what we see at this point in the story because God delivers his people finally out of Egypt and we're reminded in our hearts that God always does what he promised to do. He always does. He brings us out. Whatever you find yourself in this morning, whatever situation, whatever circumstances, whatever difficulties, this season we've walked through as a church, this is the promise we have. God will bring us through. God will bring us out. We have this certainty. We have this hope that we can hold on to, that God has made a promise and that he is going to keep his promise. You know what else I've been reminding myself of, especially this week, these last couple of weeks, is that there are things in our lives that we're asking God to bring us out of But let's not be so self-centered and so myopic that we don't forget that there are brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are suffering things for the gospel that we can't even begin to understand. I mean, I know things in our country are challenging and getting more challenging. I understand that. But we're not afraid to be here this morning, are we? We haven't locked the doors. We're not whispering. We're not meeting in homes. We may someday. We're not now. So let's not get so self-absorbed that we're only thinking about our situations and praying about our situations and God, get us out of this and God, get us through this. God, break our hearts for our family around the world who don't know if they're gonna live and die today because they went to church. But God will bring them out too. In some way and in some manner, he will deliver them. So we have this hope. And then the last statement, and this is what we're gonna close, that God said in chapter seven, the Egyptians... Why did he do it this way? God could have done it so many other ways. He could have just sort of like Scotty beam them up. He could have just beamed all the uh, Israelites out of there and just kind of taken them. Why did he do it the way he did it? Why the 10 plagues? Why the show of power? Why did God roll up his sleeves and flex his muscles? Why? Why did he defeat all these gods? And this is why he said it. So that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. This is why God does everything he does. So that people will know that he is the Lord. And look at this. This is the very end of the story. Verse 37, it says, the people of Israel, this is the Exodus now, they're leaving. They journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. So 600,000 men, so you're talking over a million people. And then in verse 38, it says this very interesting phrase, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. What does that mean? A mixed multitude. This is what it means. There were some Egyptians that went with them. There were some Egyptians who watched this thing happen, these 10 plagues, and they said, there's only one true God, and this is the Lord. And so there actually is an evangelistic outcome to these 10 plagues. 
If God had never done these 10 plagues, none of those Egyptians would have ever left Egypt to serve him. But even in, even in displaying his power and extending his hand and dropping his fist, he's still wooing people to himself. Whatever God is doing, it's always so that people will know he is the Lord. And the last thought is this. On that night of the 10th plague, two things happen. Firstborn sons die and blood provides protection and covering for God's people. And the exact two things happened at Calvary. The firstborn, the only son, God's one and only son, Jesus, comes and he dies. But at the same time, his blood is shed to provide what? Covering, to cover us. To, to, so that we can be covered in the blood of Christ. We sang about it this morning that we will overcome. How? By the blood of the Lamb, which simply means the work of Jesus, what he did for us, and the word of our testimony, which simply means our, our willingness to proclaim and speak of God's goodness and faithfulness to his people. And so when we look at Passover and we see the blood applied to the doorway so that the angel of death would pass over so that they would not die but that they would live, it should always remind us of the communion table where Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, is applied to our hearts, to our lives, so that death, eternal death, not, not of course, temporary death, we will all taste of that, but eternal death will pass by us so that we can live forever with him. This is the hope that we have, that the shed blood of Jesus applied to our lives allows the judgment of God that you and I very much deserve to pass over us so that we can have, we can be brought out and brought into freedom. Let's pray together this morning.